Amen. All right, how are we doing today? We're, uh, you know, in a weird spot right now because um, it's raining and uh, outside it's gloomy. And sometimes what happens, I don't know if you know this, but it kind of filters its way into the sanctuary. And we have to actually uh, work just a little bit harder to um, find that joy and that peace and that excitement of the Holy Spirit. Would you agree? And uh, man, the, uh, the worship this morning was awesome. And I think that uh, started to lift that mood a little bit. So uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, yep. Emergency. Yeah, that's why I, I take it slow as we get started. <laughs> we got a bunch of uh, first responders in our church. Let's pray for them. Let's pray for whatever's going on there. Um, so we're, we're looking at uh, David. We've been in First um, Samuel uh, for a few weeks. We're going to continue in First Samuel uh, for a little while and then into Second Samuel and just really dig into the life of David. And when we began... We saw um, with David that there was a formative uh, experience. There was a formative um, uh, thing that was happening in his life before uh, he ever, you know, approached Goliath. Before he was ever approached to uh, do anything for the kingdom, um, he had uh, trusted God to to uh, be with him, to protect him, to empower him. Uh, when he was fighting off lions and bears and enemies and whatever else might come to try to attack the sheep, uh, he, he was trusting God. There was something that was going on between him and God, this personal relationship. It formed him. And what we're going to see you know, in these uh, passages we look at in a moment is that uh, that formation had to be, in a sense, tested with trials, with difficulties, with hard choices. And so here's, you know, as we begin, I just want to try to bring your hearts and minds to a place uh, in your own experience with the Lord. I do not, um, I do not take for granted that everybody who's here this morning, everyone who's listening or watching is a saved person. Uh, who, who believes in Jesus and received Jesus and knows that, you know, without a doubt that they're going to heaven, that the Holy Spirit is resounding in their own heart with the Father's Spirit, that they are a child of God. There's, there are people um, that, believe it or not, do not have that hope or that confidence for whatever reason, um, whether they've been participating in church services for many years or this is their first experience in church for whatever reason, some people have just hesitated to make that leap of faith to trust Jesus Christ. But many people have come to a place where they've trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that God is real, he's the creator, uh, that I'm made in his image, but I'm a fallen creature in need of redemption. Jesus is the only redeemer. He paid the full price on the cross. I've trusted that. And by trusting in Jesus uh, somehow, mysteriously, but promised in God's word, 
that if I will believe, then he will save. And the confidence of knowing that, believing that, and trusting that has filled your heart and mind and soul and the path of your life that, that you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that if you were to die today, that you would be in heaven. Amen? And, and a lot of people have that peace and that confidence. Um, they know it beyond the shadow of doubt because not only is it something that the Word of God says and they believe it, but because their spirit um, has the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. And it's this, this action of God that's res- responding to the action of faith, and it's this wonderful, mysterious, powerful event in your life. Well, that's a, a formation, okay? That is formative in your life. And it happened probably at some point in your past, uh, when you were younger or maybe here recently, but at some point in your past, you stepped into faith, you believed Jesus, and, and you are eternally saved. Um, and you cannot lose that. There's, there's nothing you can do to lose it. Now, from that position of that formation, there, you come into a place of uh, choices. Okay, you made a choice to follow Jesus fundamentally. You said, yes, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to give him my life. Now you have um, daily choices that you have to make. And moment, moment by moment, every, every moment you have decisions that you have to make. And some of these decisions are difficult. They're, you have to discern you know, through prayer and through the word and through, you know, good counsel and, and a lot of thinking and, and trying to judge all the, the scenarios and all the rest of it. Like, how do I proceed in my life? And some of that is, is testing your character. Some of it's testing your faith. Some of it's testing, you know, uh, just the, the basic thought process of how you're going to make decisions. And so David comes to this place where he is formed in a relationship with God, but now he's being tested in whether or not he will trust God in the day-to-day, okay? You and I have um, this great hope of eternal life. One of the things that we oftentimes neglect is to think about, talk about, and understand, what do I do with my day-to-day life? We're so sometimes focused on going to heaven and, and getting our sin taken care of, that we forget that, that I have to function in a family, in a workplace, in a life, in a culture, in a world uh, that is confusing and difficult. And my emotions are involved, and I have a lot of voices, you know, competing for, for my attention, and I have a lot of feelings, you know, that, that steer me one way or another. How do you make a right decision? Um, Because what we know is that your decisions are going to eventually, and probably sooner than later, impact the destination. Where are you going with your life? What I choose today is going to matter tomorrow. So as we start, we're going to give you some principles, okay? We're going to give you some basic promises that Scripture gives. We're going to read James chapter 1, verse 5 just to give us a sense of direction. And then we're going to go back and we're going to look at the stories of David as he flees from Saul and has some difficult decisions to make. So let's stand as we read God's word. James 1, 5. 
James 1.5 says, uh, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And Father, we thank you for your promise, Lord. We take your word um, always as a promise. We thank you that you declare truth, that you uh, give us understanding uh, to respond to it, Lord. Your Holy Spirit gives us a, a, a deeper clarity of what it means, how to apply it, uh, Lord. But we thank you that you are willing to speak to us through your word, willing to uh, make promises to us, Lord. You, you had no uh, reason to do that other than it was your will. You, you had no responsibility other than it was your choice to tell us, to declare uh, who you are, who we are, and what you wanted to accomplish, Lord. And we thank you uh, that you invite us every day, every moment, uh, to be involved in your, wor your world, in your activity, in your kingdom, Lord. You've, you've set us apart to do um, what is glorifying to you, Father. We pray that you would come. Um, give us wisdom, Lord. We've, we are going to agree with the song we sang earlier. The Holy Spirit, just come. Rest on us. Give us understanding. Give us peace. Give us a sense of clarity, confirmation, and confidence, Lord, that we might choose rightly and be blessed and be a blessing because of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what James tells us in this promise is that uh, we will receive wisdom if, like, and here's what you have to know about most promises in Scripture, they are basically legal contracts, okay? God will do such and such if you do such and such, okay? It's a legal contract. God will give you wisdom if you seek it. Now we're going to try to understand um, what the specifics are, what the details are of how to understand God's will. Okay, as a believer, your next step after you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior and you've been saved and confirmed in that faith that I'm going to go to heaven, your next step and every step thereafter is simply this. What is God's will? What is God's will? What does God want? What does he want me to do? How does he want me to act? Everything in your life after you've received Christ is that question and that answer. What does God want? If you're not asking that, then you are, you're fired. I don't know. You're just, you're, you're missing it, okay? I'm just, I'm sorry, but that's the truth. So here's what happens in David's life. We're going to get into the details. How do you do this? Is it just because you say, okay, I want to seek wisdom. God, give me wisdom. And I, I pray for this all the time. God, give me wisdom. Well, how do I discern or discover what God's will and what his wisdom is? Well, let's look and see uh, what David's story can tell us about it. It says, uh, this is chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. It says, when, Sam, uh, or when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul has been doing what he ought to be doing, which is he's pursuing his enemies, he's dealing with the threats to his kingdom, but now he's going to leave that and he's going to go chase after David, who is actually one of his valiant soldiers. So he's going to go uh, on a wild goose chase looking for David. Goes to En Gedi, 
uh, En Gedi is south of um, Jerusalem, and so it's this wonderful, beautiful area with lots of hills and caves and valleys um, and some springs and some waterfalls, and it's really close to the Dead Sea area. So uh, it's a great place for David to hide. It's a very hard place for Saul to try to find him. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. Now, how many uh, people does David have with him? Anybody know? 600. Okay, at this point he has 600 soldiers. They're not really soldiers. They're kind of like um, a bunch of rebels uh, who are just fleeing from you know, the various authorities. And they've kind of you know, gathered around David like, oh, here's our leader. Saul has 3,000 trained soldiers which is five times more than what uh, David has because he thinks wrongly that if he can just outnumber uh, David's soldiers, then somehow he could, he could win against David. Now, how many of you know that um, it doesn't matter how many soldiers Saul has? He could have 30,000. He could have 300,000. He could have 3 million. It doesn't matter. Uh, God is with David, and Saul can't touch him. Okay, so it says in verse 3, He came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now what you are going to notice here, um, if you've ever been to Engedi, which... I have, and a few uh, who've traveled to Israel have, is that this is a very um, hilly, rocky, and uh, a very cave-infested area. Everywhere that you look, there are caves. I mean, you just, we walked through um, from the, the, the beginning of this uh, area, we walked, I don't even know how many miles it was back into what it was called David's waterfall, uh, David's stronghold. Um, and there's just caves all over the place. And here is Saul um, coming out of the camp, which he is supposed to do. This is a, the law. This is the requirement that uh, when a soldier is going to use the restroom, okay, they need to go outside of the camp. Now, Saul um, somehow coincidentally, right, remarkably coincidentally just so happens to find the cave where David and his men are hiding. And what we understand and know about this is that um, God has appointed that this should happen. This is not a coincidence. This is, it's not an accident. It's not uh, anything other than God supernaturally bringing these two things into alignment at this moment. One of the things that should have happened at this point, is that Saul should have sent a scout into whatever cave he's going to use 
as a bathroom. And that person should have checked the cave out fairly thoroughly, okay, uh, looking for potentially 600 men um, in the cave or a, a bear or a lion or a, some, a snake or something. Like He should have checked it out, made sure it was safe. Um, but somehow or other, Saul enters this cave with 600 men in it, and he begins to use the, the bathroom. Okay. God has appointed this thing to happen. And in David's mind, you have to walk through, why would this be the case? What is, what is God trying to do here? You ever have a situation, you're like, what is God trying to do here? I, I don't know why I have this opportunity. Um, David has this opportunity. He, he begins to, I would think, okay, I'm just going to mentally walk through this as if I were David. God has left Saul. God has said to Saul that he's no longer the rightful king. Um, Saul is, is um, not accomplishing his responsibility as king. Okay? He's, he should be fighting his enemies. Instead, he's chasing David. Saul has killed uh, a number of his own people uh, spitefully just because they inadvertently uh, had helped David uh, to escape Saul, where they didn't even know that David was fleeing Saul at that point. But Saul killed like 80 priests, uh, his own people. Uh, Saul has tried to kill uh, Jonathan, his own son. He's tried to kill David numerous occasions. Um, and so David, uh, on the other hand, if you look at his life, he's, he is uh, anointed by God. God has filled him with his Holy Spirit. Um, he is rightful um, in his kingship. He's, he's been appointed the king of Israel. David's been, or, or Saul's been rejected as king. And now, supernaturally, God has put Saul into a very vulnerable position within David's grasp. What should he do? Okay, And I would imagine David's working through this, thinking through it. Um, he's got an opportunity. He's got all his men with him. Here's Saul. He could take care of this right now. Become king. Bless the nation. The nation would be far more blessed if David were leading it than, than it is with Saul. Take care of this problem. Is God manufacturing this thing for him to do that? And what David does is remarkable, okay? Because instead of going on circumstances or feelings or spur-of-the-moment decision, David refers back to the Scripture. Instead of making a decision based on how he feels right then and there, he goes back to what the Word of God says. And the Word of God says, and he knows that it says this, you shall not, number one, kill... Now, there are certain exceptions to that in warfare, okay, in battle. You fight your enemies and, and self-defense and things along those lines, okay? This is not that. This is an assassination. So he says, okay, this does not qualify. Number two, the Bible also says, you shall not even curse the leader of your people. shouldn't even curse them. So David takes the scripture as an absolute, and he says, this is what the Bible says. I'm going to do what God has commanded and declared clearly, even though the circumstances seem to give me this exception. He, he believes 
like we all ought to believe, that he is not an exception to the rule. And that's how he's going to make his decision. Now, how many of you think that that's probably a, a good way to make some decisions in your life based on what the Bible says, not how I feel? Can I get a couple amens? It, it, would it be better to make your choices based on how the Bible you know, tells us how to live or how you feel in the moment? And so David, he decides he's going to trust what the Word of God says and not necessarily his circumstances or how he feels. If you want to make better choices, then wherever you can, you refer back to what God's Word says. And then what will happen is that God's Word will begin to change how you think about situations, how you feel about certain situations. Um, Here's a concern that I have. Uh, A concern that I have is that Many Christians who declare Jesus as Lord, who would say that they are Bible-believing Christians, biblical-thinking Christians, um, often feel that they are the exception to the rule. Whenever they have the opportunity to um, do the right thing or the wrong thing, well... I'm going to rely on grace. God will forgive me because I really want to do this thing. Or I really feel strongly about this thing. Or my particular situation is that, you know, I, I'm the exception. Now, let me give you an example. I've been skirting around this. Let me, before I do, give you the exception or the, uh, the example. If we were to go through everything that the Bible says you ought to do and ought not to do, how long would we be here? Forever? Okay. So I'm going to give you one example. This is not the only example. This is just one area that I notice, okay? Um, Many, many Christians think that they are the the exception to the rule when it is in regards to their language. That um, even though the Bible says you should not allow foul talk out of your mouth, well... Yeah, maybe that's okay for preachers like Luke and, you know, Seth and maybe some other, you know, holier-than-thou type of folks. <laughs> we're, we're like Puritans, you know, among, among the world. I don't, I need one of those big, not a dunce cap, <laughs> the other one with the buckle on it. That's, that's fine for you. You don't live in the real world where we live. You know, I, I work in construction. I work among these people, these heathens, and they're all talking, you know, and they use foul language, and they're telling dirty jokes. And I go to school among all these people, and it's really dark where I work and where I go to school and the people that I'm with. You just don't know my family because, you know, if you knew the family that I grew up in, you'd know that I'm doing way better than what I've you know, been raised to do or believe or think and say and and we just, we kind of make all these excuses for ourselves about how we talk and why we use the language that we do. But what does the word say? You know, the word says, out of the heart, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And, and the very fact that it is exceptional to be pure in the way that you talk 
is the reason why we ought to do it. Because you are among people that need to see a difference. And I know it's hard, and I know that some people struggle, and I know, that, and, and here's what the Bible tells us, that as often as you fail, guess what? You can repent, and you can confess your sin, and God will forgive you. But you have to continue just to bring that to the Lord. Every time that the Lord's name in vain pops out of your mouth, or that foul word, or that vulgar thing, whenever it comes out, you just say, God, I'm sorry for that. And really, it would be good if you said to the people that you're with, I'm sorry that that slipped out of my mouth. Every time, don't excuse yourself. Don't say that you're the exception. You're not. David did not believe he was the exception. And if there ever was a time that you would think that somebody possibly could be the exception to this rule, it would have been David at this moment. He says, I'm not the exception. And here's what you have to understand. There is never an exception. There's grace. There's mercy, there's forgiveness, there's no exception. So David runs his life based on what the Word of God says, not how he feels, not in, in the circumstance in the moment. And then what happens in verse 11, says, See, my father, see, the corner of your robe is in my hand. Um, and now David, it said that his heart struck him when he cut off David, uh, Saul's robe. Um, it, it's going to be a very important um, confirmation that he did not kill him when he could have. But it also was something he felt guilty about because um, how many of you realize, like, if I were to grab you by the collar and drag you around, that that would, might be a violation of your personal space? <laughs> if I were to cut just a little piece off of your, your jacket, you, you think that might, might, might hurt your feelings a little bit? Like, that's, that's, my, that's my clothing. What? And this is the royal... Robe and, and what it is is when, when uh, the woman with the blood issue touched the hem of Jesus' garment um, and she was healed, it was as if she touched Jesus. Your clothes, even though they're not you, um, they, they are so intimately part of you that to touch somebody's clothing is really to touch the person. Would you agree? And this is what happens. And David, it, it's not that it was illegal or it was a capital offense. It was just that it was disrespectful. David will not even approach Saul in a disrespectful way because he is the leader of God's people. And the word says, you shall not even curse them. And he was sorry that he had even done that. And so it says this, it says, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. David never regards Saul as his enemy. It's a remarkable thing that he doesn't actually call Saul his enemy. In fact, um, one of the interesting things that he writes in Psalm 18. This is superscript. Superscript means that it's a description of the psalm before the actual song uh, begins. And it says uh, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And then he says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. 
the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my and on and on. But what he's saying is he's distinguishing between his enemies and Saul. He won't, even after Saul's dead and gone and David is king, he will not refer to Saul as his enemy. He always held him in respect. If you read through the entirety of this story, as we're going to, over the next several weeks, read through some of these events, you're going to see that even when Saul died, David regarded him as somebody to be honored, somebody to be respected, and he would not call him an enemy, and he would not curse him. Here's what it says, though. He says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. This is a proverb. They knew it. They understood it. Here's what it means. Conduct reveals character. That's all David is saying. Conduct reveals character. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I've done. Here's what you're doing. Here's, here's how you've been treating me. Here's how I've been treating you. Wh- who's got character here? Who's righteous? Who's holy? Who's doing right? Okay, and so we know that this is something that we could all bank on as being true. This has been true for 3,000 years. It's still true now that your character is going to be defined. It's going to be revealed by what you do. And yet here we are, okay, 3,000 years later, we still seem to struggle with this idea. And in our culture right now, I would say this is... uh, being lost. Right now, we hear people say things like, um, I'm a good person deep down. If you just knew me, if you would take the time to get to know my heart, then you would know that I'm a good person. Don't look at what I do, right? We, we're making a distinction between our actions and our character, between what we do and our heart. Like, we can be good people in our heart, even no matter what we do. Would you agree that's the sentiment that we have going on today? The Bible says you're revealing what is going on in your heart by how you act. So we need to get our actions right. All right, verse 17, he says, this is uh, Saul talking back to David. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Uh, another principle that we live by is that there are three basic ways to respond to how you are treated, okay? Uh, there is the evil and satanic way, uh, which is what Saul is doing. Saul is repaying good that David has done with evil. David has only done good to Saul. He's only been respectful to Saul. He's only been a champion for Saul and for Israel and for the army, and Saul is chasing him, trying to kill him. Okay, so that's satanic. When somebody does good to you, your response as a natural human being is to respond with good. Would you agree? So number one, evil is evil for good. Number two, natural is good for good. You do good to me, I'll do good to you. You do bad to me, watch out. Right? I'm coming after you. You hurt my feelings, then get ready. You, you take something from me, I'm going to take something from you. That's normal, natural, human instinct. Most people feel that way. Um, I, I'll respect that person as long as they respect me. I'll talk kindly to that person as long as they talk kindly to me. I will do good as long as they do good to me. Um, but if they do wrong, 
then they're dead to me. Uh, and here's what Saul says David does. You repay good for evil. So as Saul is trying to capture David and kill him, David is blessing and respectful and honoring of Saul. And everywhere that you turn in the story, David is honoring Saul where Saul is trying to kill David. That is supernatural. That is how God treats you. Here's just one principle of making good decisions. Um, always seek to do good, even if people don't deserve it. You will not lose anything. You won't harm yourself. It won't de you know, take anything away from you to do good, even if people treat you badly. Would you agree? It's a supernatural thing to be kind even when people are insulting. Jesus said it this way. He said, bless those who, what? Curse you and persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. If you can't do anything else, okay, say you can't bring yourself to do something good to somebody who's been bad to you, can you at least pray for them? Just, God, um, I pray that you change their heart. God, I pray that you'd bless them. I've, I have prayed uh, at times in my life for people that were out to harm me. And I've just prayed, God, bless them, be with them, change their heart, and then uh, in weaker moments, God, judge them. <laughs> but uh, that's when, you know, I'm being more natural. All right. So chapter 26, you have another occasion where uh, Saul is after David, uh, we're skipped over chapter 25. We're going to get back to that next week. But chapter 26, uh, David does not trust Saul. Saul has said, you're going to be king. Uh, you're, you're better than I am. You're, you have more character than I do. But David does not trust him. He just continues to flee and hide. But uh, Saul hears that David is hiding um, in the hill country of Hakilah. And so he goes out and he looks for him and he camps out. Now, I want you to picture this, okay? Alito is 3,700 folks, okay? The city of Alito, that's the population-ish. Saul has 3,000 soldiers, okay? Nearly the, the population of Alito. They're all out camped, and Saul's in the middle of this camp, okay? Can you kind of picture that a little bit? It's kind of hard to wrap your mind around this, but you have the, all these people and surrounding, and obviously Saul, the king, is going to be at the center of the camp. He feels very safe, and David spies and sees that Saul is, you know, here, and God has put a supernatural sleep over this whole camp. And so David, um, he talks to Joab and Abishai. Now, Joab is the leader of, of David's army. He's going to be when David becomes king. Abishai is Joab's brother. Okay, who are these guys? These are his nephews. They are the sons of David's sister. Okay, uh, very important uh, not really, but if you're curious, that's who they are. So verse 7, David and Abishai went to the army by night. There lay Saul, sleeping with the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Abishai said to David, God, I, <laughs> I love the confidence of Abishai here. Okay. God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike him twice. Okay? And I believe it. 
And David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down to the battle and perish. Now, what David is saying is that uh, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. He, he believes that scripture. God's going to take care of this. Um, he believes that either Saul uh, will just have a supernatural heart attack. Okay, in chapter 25, that's what happened uh, to the guy that was uh, kind of being a jerk to David. He just had a heart attack and died. So he's like, God can do that. If he wants to take him out, he'll take him out. Or he'll just get old and die. Or he'll die in battle. I don't have to kill him. That's what he's saying. Verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. And so here's what's happening, is that you think that here's another opportunity, um, and David, maybe he's going to go down there and feel it out, and, and God's put this supernatural sleep over everybody, and, and he could go ahead and kill Saul right here and now and get this done and over with, and maybe he's going to see how he feels in the moment. That's not what's happening. David is seeking to confirm once and for all to Saul that he is righteous, that he has no ill intent towards Saul. He's already made his decision how he's going to treat Saul. All he wants is evidence to present to Saul to show him that he has no ill will towards him. He's already decided that the word of God says don't kill him. He's not going to go down there and see how he feels. Here's one of the things that um, will help you make some better decisions. If you can make a decision in advance of the moment, then you can make a better decision. Um, here's one of the best examples that we have. We have an altar. Many people, if not most people, when they get married, they stand at the altar with a pastor, priest, judge, somebody officiating, and they, are ha they have a crowd of witnesses, friends, and family, and they do one particular thing that's very interesting. They exchange vows. Anybody ever do that? And when you exchange vows, normally, one of the things that you will say is, I will be faithful unto you, forsaking most others until such a time that I change my mind. No, you say, I, I'll be faithful unto you, forsaking all others until death do us part. Right? Well, how do you know? How do you know that you can do that? You decide in that moment or prior to that moment. It doesn't matter how you feel in 10 years or in 20 years or in 50 years. I'm making a preemptive decision how I'm going to live my life. I've forsaken all others other than this one person. So it doesn't matter how I feel doesn't matter what the opportunity is. doesn't matter the temptation because I've already decided how I'm going to act. Amen? Wouldn't it be nice if we actually did that? 
what happens to a lot of people is that what they really mean is, I will forsake all other people unless something changes. If I don't feel like it down the road, then maybe I won't forsake other people. If, if uh, you're kind of mean to me, if uh, I fall in love with somebody else, if, you know, this thing of marriage just kind of isn't really all what everybody says it's supposed to be, well, I'll just change. And, and that's ultimately what uh, a lot of people seem to mean when they're giving, <laughs> exchanging their vows. And, and it's really a shame because what happens in that moment is that it's not just you're saying, I'm going to forsake all others um, until death do us part because I really feel like it right now. You're making a vow, a commitment, a, a choice that I'm going to live according to this thing that I've said and declared back here. I'm going to live that way uh, no matter where, no matter what, no matter who. Okay, Wherever we go, I'm going to make sure I live that way. And every choice that I make from this day forward is going to be to preserve the marriage and to forsake others. Right? You can do that, not only in your marriage. I know some people think that, wow, that's, can you actually do that? Yeah, you can do that. But you can do that in a lot of other areas of your life. You can decide up front that you're going to live in such a way to honor God in your life. So that, I'll give you another example. Sunday morning, um, are you waiting to see how you feel before you get up and take a shower and go to church? Or have you made a decision up front? I'm going to be in church on Sunday. So unless I'm ill or something catastrophic happens Sunday morning, that's where I'm going to be. I don't have to see how I feel at the moment. And, and you know how this works because you, anybody graduate from school? Go to a job? So I don't know. Maybe this, the culture is changing on me. I don't know. But in my experience, you, uh, you have a job, and so I don't wait to see how I feel whether I'm going to go to my job. I, I'm committed to, to working my job. So I get up, and I get dressed and ready and go to my job, and I do my work, and that's kind of what we do, right? Or, or is this foreign to anybody? Is this kind of how it works? You know, you can do that in your moral life. You can do that in your spiritual life. You can do that in your relationship with God. What is so alarming is that so many people do not spend any time with God because they never feel like it. I'm going to wait and see how I feel. I don't know if I feel like reading the Bible. I don't know if I feel like praying. Guess what? You need to. It doesn't matter if you feel like it. Then. Sometimes it may get more out of it than other times, but every day I need God in my life. And so I need to get up and I need to read the word and I need to spend time with God. And I need to let him instruct me and change my heart and change my mind and guide me in my life. I need that. You need that. I'm not very different from you, okay? We all need to spend that time with God. I can make that decision. I made that decision decades ago that I'm going to spend time with God every day. So I'm not waiting to see how I feel every day about it. I just do it. And 
I'm, I'm driving this point home, okay, because it's frustrating to hear from so many people so often that they don't spend time with the Lord and they know that they should. And like, what do I do? I don't know what to tell you. Like, decide today that this is how you're going to live your life and do it. And it might get hard and it might, sometimes it might, you know, be frustrating and sometimes it won't accomplish everything that you want it to accomplish, but you keep doing the things that you know are going to work to grow you spiritually and to put your life in order the way God wants. And over time, what happens is you see it's not so hard. It was hard back here, maybe in the early days, but here I am 20 years later and, you know, it's not really that hard. I, in fact, I, I know how much I need it and how valuable it is. Can I get an amen? And David understood that he, if he waited to see how he felt in the moment when, when he came to this uh, situation with Saul, what would he do? What would he do if he was going to wait to see how he felt? He would have killed Saul right then and there. But he knew in advance how he was going to treat the situation. Ultimately, um, in the end, he tells Saul, he says, who are you looking for? A flea, a partridge, <laughs> you know, and, and all that means is a flea jumps around, you know. Uh, a partridge is a weird little bird. It, it doesn't like to fly. Did you know this? It doesn't like to fly. When it's being chased, it just scurries from one bush to another. Anybody ever seen a partridge? It just scurries around and tries to find shelter. And David is, he's humbling himself before Saul and he says, I'm nothing. I'm, I'm humbling myself before you. You are the king. I'm not the king. And I will not harm you, and I will not put my hand against you, and I will not attack you. You don't have to worry about that. And ultimately, here's what happens. When David humbles himself, he is the most powerful person in the world. And when you humble yourself before the Lord, okay, First of all, you receive Jesus Christ. You humble yourself before the Lord. You are the most indestructible person on the earth. Eternal life is yours. The Holy Spirit is yours. A new identity in Christ is yours. The Christian life is doing that day after day after day. And I get to live an indestructible life. Amen? And the choices I make... I give God all the glory for what he's going to do with it. I don't know what he's going to get out of it, but he's going to get the glory. Father, we thank you. God, we give you all praise that uh, this life, short, weak, <laughs> temporary thing that it is, Lord, um, it's precious in your sight. You have great plans for it. Each and every one of us, God, we have something so valuable You've placed eternity in our hearts. You've placed a, a, an identity on us. Lord, we could not grasp of our own making, our own understanding. You made it. You declared it. You said that we are precious in your sight, more valuable than anything that you made, willing to sacrifice your own son to win it back, to redeem it, and to keep it forever. And Lord, we pray that we would value these lives as much as you do. Enough to lay them at your feet, enough to allow you to work in them, through them, uh, to glorify yourself. Lord, we pray that our decisions would be 
honoring to you. We'll give you all praise, Lord. I'm praying, God, that first, foremost, and above all, that anyone who has not made that decision to lay their life down before Jesus Christ and allow you to heal them, restore them, forgive them, and give them eternal life, Lord, would, would you impress upon them? Would you, would you confirm in their heart their need and, and the fact that you will certainly receive them? Without a doubt, you would rejoice in their life, love uh, to give them that hope. And Lord, I pray that anyone who makes that decision today, Lord, would have a, a deep and powerful confirmation from your Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. We just give you all praise. Bless us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you this morning that whatever the Lord is putting on your heart that you would just lay down, we, we always say that the altar is a place for things to, to come and just be sacrificed. Um, here's what I know. We've all made some bad choices in the past. Amen. <laughs> we can make better choices. We can see better results. We can give God more glory. Um, he can have more opportunity in and through us. Each and every day is an opportunity just to say, God, I'm going to say yes to you. What is your will? Help me to do it. And uh, whatever is keeping you from that, would you just lay it down? Whether it's an initial accepting of Jesus Christ or it's a persistent sin that you're having a struggle with, would you just lay it down and let the Lord take it? Amen? Let's stand and sing.